Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the blessings that we've been having this weekend already, and I pray that you would bless me in a special way this coming hour as we go through our next section on Michael. May it be clear and may it help us to see how Michael is fighting on our behalf. This is my prayer in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Okay, so again, this is our continuing series on Michael in the Great Controversy. There's four chapters in Scripture that describe Michael in Great Controversy warfare. In Scripture, we have Revelation 12, the book of Jude, Daniel chapter 10, and Daniel chapter 12. And as far as chronology goes, Revelation 12 gets us back to before the world was created. The book of Jude gets us to the point where Michael was contending with Satan over the body of Moses which was, you know, well before the time of Christ. Then we get further down here in Daniel chapter 10 where we're going to see Daniel's prayer and Michael fighting on behalf of Daniel. So that's even further down in history. And then we are going to finish up our next presentation when Michael stands up at the very end of time of the close of probation. So these are the four chapters that describe great controversy warfare with Christ and Satan. Um, okay, so we've looked at Revelation chapter 12. We've seen the great controversy, sort of the big picture. It started in heaven. It moved here to this earth, and the vehicles through which the controversy is now being fought are the two women, the, women, or the woman that Christ raised up and the woman that um, the great red dragon, or Satan, raised up. You have the remnant church, and you have the harlot. And that controversy plays out till the very end. And what we looked at in our last section in the book of Jude is we see that false teachers have crept in unnoticed into the church. They're turning the grace of God into lasciviousness, licentiousness, teaching that grace gives us license to sin. That leads to a mentality of um, people in the church that are like Cain, who are like Balaam, and who are like Korah, bringing in false worship going into ministry for false motives, and Korah seeking positions of leadership that God has not ordained us to do. And one thing I didn't say in last presentation, what happened after the earth swallowed up Korah and, and his followers? What happened the next day? The people came back and said, you have killed the people of the Lord. So there were still sympathizers even after that. So, and, so, and then again, you see that these leaders speak with great swelling words. It's like a f foreshadowing of how the papacy would arise and speak great words against the Most High. And then it concludes with the prophetic foreshadowing of God raising up a group of people where it says, Now to him who is able to keep you from fall falling and to present you faultless before the throne of God. That's the 144,000 who will stand without fall before the throne of God. So that's what we've looked at so far. And we've done some pretty heavy hitting. We've attacked some hard issues. This third session will bring in a practical element to our personal lives that will see how we can especially be part of Michael working on our behalf. So that's what we're going to see here in Daniel chapter 10. So let's pick it up, and again, I always start each chapter by reading the section that describes Michael, and then we go back through the chapter from there. So Daniel chapter 10, starting in verse 12. This is Gabriel speaking to Daniel. Then said he unto me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that thou didst set thine heart to understand and to chasten thyself before thy God, thy words were heard, and I am come for thy words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me one and twenty days. But lo, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, and I remained there with the kings of Persia. Now I am come to make thee understand what shall befall thy people in the latter days, for yet the vision is for many days. Okay, so Gabriel says, hey, I'm come for your words, and I actually was trying to come from the very first that you started praying, but I got held up by the king of Persia. This is Gabriel speaking. Gabriel has a lot of power. He is next to God in power, and he got held up by the king of Persia. Do you think a human king alone had the power to hold up Gabriel? No, there was something else going on here. Satan was again working through the heart of the king of Persia to hold up Gabriel. And finally, Michael had to show up. 
once Michael showed up, then things could take place. And we'll get into all of that. So that's just the introduction to this concept of Michael in Daniel chapter 10. Now, when you look at Daniel chapter 10, Daniel chapter 10 is the introduction to the vision of Daniel 11. You understand that? Daniel 11, starting in verse 1, all of a sudden you just pick it up. And if you don't read Daniel chapter 10, you go to Daniel 11, verse 1, and it says, Also I, in the first year of Darius the Mede, even I stood to confirm and to strengthen him. And, and immediately you're lost. You don't even know what it's talking about. Because you didn't read Daniel chapter 10. Daniel 10 is the introduction to the vision of Daniel 11. And Daniel 11 is a chapter in scripture that people like to talk about, they like to study, and we're going to get into that. But if you're going to understand Daniel chapter 11 and its significance and its importance, you have to understand what Daniel 10 is talking about. And that's what we're going to do in this hour. Then the next hour, we're going to talk about Daniel 11. So this is sort of a two-part on Daniel 11, but Daniel 10 is the introduction. Okay. So let's go to Daniel chapter 10, verse 1. Picking it up in verse 1, we read, In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a thing was revealed unto Daniel, whose name was called Belteshazzar, and the thing was true, but the time appointed was long, and he understood the thing and had understanding of the vision. Now, I'll just start right off. Here it says, The third year of Cyrus, king of Persia. So this is towards the very end of Daniel's life. And it says, a thing was revealed unto Daniel. If you have a marginal reading for thing, it's message. A message was revealed to Daniel, whose name was called Belteshazzar. And the message was true, but the time appointed was what? Was long. And he understood the thing or the message and had understanding of the vision. So at the very end we see this is a vision that is revealed to Daniel. This vision contains a message and Daniel understands it. Now what does Daniel understand about this vision? That it's very long. Okay. So a vision message is revealed to Daniel. And what he understands is that this message is long. Okay. Now, for those of you who have studied the book of Daniel, when Daniel says that he understood the vision, does that contrast with what he has said in earlier parts of the book of Daniel? Do you remember Daniel chapter 8? He has this vision, and he hears, and of 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. And when you come to the end of Daniel chapter 8, at the very end, he says, I was astonished at the vision, but none understood it. So Daniel, he has the vision of Daniel chapter 7, and he gets an explanation for that. Then he has the vision of Daniel chapter 8, and when he has the vision of Daniel chapter 8, he says he's astonished at that vision, and it says none understood it. Even after Gabriel comes back and tells Daniel, here's what you need to understand, he still didn't understand it. How do we know he still didn't understand it? Then you study Daniel chapter 9. What's he doing in Daniel chapter 9? He's reading and studying prophecies from the book of Jeremiah to try to understand and to make sense of what he saw in Daniel chapter 8. So, and we're going to look at that, because that helps us to understand the context of Jan Daniel chapter 10. What we can tell, though, from the very outset, Daniel says, okay, I get it this time. I'm just going to tell you right up front, I understand what this is about. This is a vision that is describing a very long period of time. And there's something that Daniel didn't understand before he had the vision of Daniel 10, 11, and 12. When he saw the vision of Daniel chapter 8, what did he see? And we're not going to, and I'm assuming, since I'm speaking to a Seventh day Adventist audience, that you know the vision of Daniel 8 cold. You know the ram, the he goat, the little horn, the ram is Medo Persia, the he goat is Greece, the little horn is pagan and papal Rome. You know the dates, you know the times, you know the, all of this and that. And I'm not going to take the time to go through all of that. If you're a Seventh day Adventist, you should know that cold. If you don't know it, start studying. So here, 
Daniel chapter 8, what does he see in this vision? He sees Medo-Persia, Greece, pagan and papal Rome, and he sees through the length of this entire vision that after 2,300 days, then the sanctuary would be cleansed. And here's what Daniel understands, but he doesn't understand. He sees that there's going to be the kingdom of Medo-Persia. That's the kingdom that he's, that's coming up next. Then there's the kingdom of Greece. Then there's the kingdom of Rome. And then the sanctuary is cleansed. Daniel knows that there is no way that can be 2,300 literal days to have the rise and fall of all of those kingdoms. He knows that that is a very, very long time. And that doesn't make sense to him because in his mind, when he hears that the sanctuary is going to be cleansed, all he can think about is the sanctuary in Jerusalem. And so he's really trying to understand, and he doesn't understand. And so that's what Daniel 9 is all about. Daniel 9 is helping Daniel to understand, hey, don't worry. Your people still have more time. There will still be probationary time for your people. Seventy weeks are determined or cut off. So that helps Daniel to understand. But here's the thing. Daniel, what he understands after chapter 9, and I'll draw this out, he sees that there was this 2,300-day prophecy in Daniel chapter 8, 2,300 days. And we know the dates, 457 B.C. to 1844. But what Daniel saw and understood in Daniel 9 was that 70 weeks are cut off. So here's what Daniel understands after chapter 9. He understands that after this, there's the decree to restore and build Jerusalem, this prophecy is going to start, and 70 weeks are cut off, and in the midst of that 70th week, the Messiah, the Prince, would, would be cut off and, and be the sacrifice for his sins. So Daniel gets the wonderful promise and prophecy of the coming of the Messiah. So when Daniel has the explanation from Gabriel in Jan Daniel chapter 9, now he understands, okay, the coming of the Messiah and the cleansing of the sanctuary there is a starting point that identifies when both of those events are going to take place. So now he understands that. But all he understands specifically is what happens to God's people, especially surrounding the time of the end of the 70 weeks. That's what he understands after Daniel chapter 9. He sees that the Messiah, the Prince, is going to be cut off, and then he sees that there's going to be an abomination of desolation that the desolator is going to come and is going, the people of the prince that shall come will come and destroy the city. And then talks about the overspreading of abominations. And so there's this abomination of desolation that will take place sometime after the death of Christ. And from history, we know that was 70 AD. Okay, so this is what Daniel has understanding of in Daniel chapter 9. Now, let me just step back and give you a little bit more to think about. How many of you have studied the end of Daniel chapter 8 where it talks about this king of fierce countenance, understanding dark sentences is going to come? How many of you have studied that? Is anyone? A few of you? Okay. Just by curiosity, who's the king of fierce countenance? Okay. No, it's not. Okay, let's, let's um, back up here. Here's the thing. Daniel chapter 8, you have the ram, you have the he-goat, you have the little horn, and then picking it up in verse 20 through 26, you have the explanation of who those, these powers are. Verse 20, the ram is Medo-Persia, the he-go is Greece, and then you have the little horn. Um, it says, in the latter time of their kingdom, this is after Greece, when the transgressors are come to the full, a king of fierce countenance and understanding dark sentences shall stand up. So we know that you have the ram, you have the he-go, and then you have the little horn. Well, in, in the explanation of Daniel 8, you have Medo-Persia, then you have Greece, so the king of fierce countenance has to be the little horn, right? And who's the little horn? First pagan and then papal Rome in Daniel 8. Daniel 7, the little horn is pa papal Rome only. But in Daniel 8, the little horn is pagan and then papal Rome. 
So you have this king of fierce countenance understanding dark sentences. He is going to come. Now, do you realize that this is not the first time in the Bible that this king of fierce countenance understanding dark sentences is mentioned? Did you know that? Where else is this king of fierce countenance mentioned? Deuteronomy 28. Deuteronomy 28. And, and do you know what Deuteronomy 28 is about? You have blessings for obedience in the first 15 verses, and then after that, it's the curses for the disobedience. So let's pick it up in Deuteronomy chapter 28. Picking it up in verse 48. And this is what will happen if the children of Israel disobeyed God. Picking it up in verse 48. Therefore shalt thou serve thine enemies, which the Lord shall send against thee in hunger and in thirst and in nakedness and in want of all things, and he shall put a yoke of what? Iron. Have you seen iron in the book of Daniel? Who does iron represent in the book of Daniel? Rome. Okay, good. So he shall put a yoke of iron upon thy neck until he have destroyed thee. Now notice this, verse 49. The Lord shall bring a nation against thee from afar, from the end of the earth, as swift as the eagle flieth. A nation whose tongue thou shalt not understand, a nation of fierce countenance. Okay, so when Daniel, so we're talking about the same thing, right? Daniel 8, you have the ram of Medo-Persia, the he-goat of Greece, and then you have a king of fierce countenance, understanding dark sentences, which is a further explanation of who the little horn is. Now, Daniel, who clearly knew his Bible, when he sees in vision and hears from Gabriel the explanation that after Medo-Persia, after Greece, you will have the king of fierce countenance, understanding dark sentences, what he hears in his mind is, we broke the covenant. Here comes the king of fierce countenance that Moses told us would come if we disobeyed. That's what's happening in Daniel chapter 8. And if you keep reading, actually let me take you back to Deuteronomy chapter 28. When you get to verse 52, it says, He shall besiege thee in all thy gates. And then verse 53, And thou shalt eat the fruit of thine own body, the flesh of thy sons and thy daughters, which the Lord thy God hath given thee. And that prophecy was fulfilled in the destruction of Jerusalem. When the, the Roman armies besieged the city, people were eating their own children. It was partially fulfilled when Babylon besieged the city, but the eating the children part especially was fulfilled with the destruction of Jerusalem. So Daniel... He sees this, and he's already seen, okay, 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. And he's seeing that during this entire time period of the 2,300 days, there's going to be a ram, a hego, and a little horn. And it's like, okay, it's going to take 2,300 years to restore the sanctuary in Jerusalem. That's what Daniel's thinking. And so that's why when you come to Daniel chapter 9, he still doesn't understand what he saw. Now he's praying earnestly to God. And he's reminding God, God, you're the one that gave us the promise that we would only spend 70 years in Babylon. And then he offers this prayer, and I'm not going to go through the whole thing, but when you read this prayer, Daniel, he includes himself in the prayer, and he's saying, we have done wickedly. We have broken the covenant. We have not followed you. We have not followed the words of the prophets. It's our fault. God, you're a merciful God. God, you're a gracious God. We're the ones that didn't follow. You're just giving us what we deserve. But I'm praying for your namesake, for your honor, for your glory. Please don't do away with your people fully and completely. Because in Daniel's mind, he's thinking, if we're fully destroyed now, where's the Messiah going to come from? He was going to come from the line of Judah. Have we been so bad that the Messiah can't come? That's what Daniel is thinking of when he goes back to this prophecy. And I'll take you to the prophecy. There's one in Jeremiah 25, and there's also the one in Jeremiah 29. And in Jeremiah chapter 29, let's start in verse 10. For thus saith the Lord, that after seventy years be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you, and causing you to, to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. Then shall ye call upon me, and ye shall go and pray unto me, and I will hearken unto you, and ye shall seek me and find me, when ye shall search for me with all your heart. And then verse 14, and I will be found of you, saith the Lord, and I will turn away your captivity, and I will gather you from all the nations and from the pl all the places whither I have driven you, saith the Lord. Okay. You know, we like this verse. Um, 
I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil. And that's a great verse that we can make a personal application to, because that verse applies to every single one of us in our daily lives. But the immediate context of that verse was the thoughts that God had towards the nation of Judah, despite their disobedience. He says, I know the thoughts I have to you, not of evil, but of peace. I want to bring you back to this land. But do you realize that there was a condition to them coming back? Verse 12 says, you shall call upon me and you shall go and pray unto me and I will hearken unto you and you shall seek me and find me when you shall search for me with all your heart. If you want to know what it means to search for God with all your heart, study the prayer of Daniel 9. Because Daniel 9, Daniel goes back to Jeremiah 29 and he's saying, we're supposed to only be here for 70 years. We haven't been praying the way God told us to be praying to turn our captivity. It's not just like snap your finger 70 years and you're going back. We need to get down on our knees and repent for our wicked condition. God loves us. He wants to turn our captivity, but we need to turn our hearts to him. And so Daniel, in Daniel chapter 9, he is praying earnestly. He is praying fervently that God will turn the captivity. And in case you don't believe, and I think you do, but I'll just show you to prove to you, that Daniel thinks that the curse from Deuteronomy 28 is about to be poured upon them. Look what Daniel 9 verse 11 says. Yea, all Israel have transgressed thy law, even by departing, that they, may, that they might not obey thy voice. Therefore, what? The curse is poured upon us, and the oath that is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, because we have sinned against him. Daniel understands that the curse from the law of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 28 is about to be poured out upon Israel because of their disobedience. So he goes back to the promises of God, which, by the way, the promises and the threatenings of God are alike conditional. His promises are conditional. His threatenings are conditional based on whether we follow him or if we don't follow him, if we obey him or if we don't obey him. And the blessings that would have been the children of Israel would have been theirs if they had obeyed him. And these curses will come, and they did come, but Daniel is saying, God, you are a merciful God. I am seeking you with all of my heart. Please hear my prayer. Please turn our captivity for your name's sake. I mean, when you come down um, to further on down, basically he's saying, look, if, if you don't turn our captivity, your name will become a reproach. So he's praying this with respect to the vindication of God's name before the universe because the honor of God's name is at stake here. Will he have a group of people that will follow him? Here's a group of people that God has led out of Egypt to Canaan and yet they keep getting taken into captivity because they don't follow him. They don't obey him. And, God, and Daniel's saying, God, please hear my prayer and turn our captivity. And, I, and, and so God obviously heard that prayer, right? And notice, in verse 23 of Daniel chapter 9, Gabriel tells Daniel, At the beginning of thy supplication the commandment came forth, and I am come to show thee, for thou art greatly beloved. Therefore understand the matter and consider the vision. And then he goes on to say, Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people, and so forth. And I'm not going to get into a whole lot more about Daniel 9, but that helps you to understand. Daniel 8, Daniel doesn't understand. All he sees is that there's this king of fierce countenance. He understands that's from the curse of the law of Moses, and that's going to be poured upon the children of Israel for their disobedience. And he's like, oh no, the Messiah hasn't even come yet. Lord, you promised only 70 years in captivity. Please turn our captivity for your namesake, for your honor, for your glory. And God heard his prayer. Now here's the amazing thing. An entire nation was in captivity. And the prayer of one man turned the captivity. And with the prayer of one man, the starting point was given for the coming of the Messiah and for the termination point for the 2300 days for the sanctuary to be cleansed because of the prayer of one man. Right. Think about where God's church would be today if we as his people would turn off the TV 
shut off the internet for a few days and go to the words of scripture that talk about praying for rain in the time of the latter rain, of talking about giving everything, to talking about praying for a time when the earth will be lightened with the glory of God. And we say, Lord, we are going to get down on our knees and we are just going to spend some meaningful time opening up our hearts to you, asking for you to cleanse the sin in my life and for the lives in my church in locally and globally. Now notice, when Daniel prayed this prayer in Daniel chapter 9, he wasn't saying, God, I'm so frustrated. These false teachers that have come into the church are just getting on my nerves. I want to like throw stones at them, and I can just see why you are so mad at them too. God, I am angry. Why do I have to be with such a sorry group of fellow Jews here in Babylon? They have just dishonored your name, and I'm the only one left. Was that his prayer? He included himself in the prayer. And he was not only praying for himself out of love, he was praying for every single one that was also part of his nation. And God heard that prayer, and he said, you still have 490 years of probationary time. Which, by the way, this is just sort of an application, but have you ever wondered why Jesus told Peter to forgive his brother 70 times 7? It's the same thing that he did to the nation of Israel. And Jesus doesn't say things by accident, but anyway. Okay. So because of the prayer of Daniel, the captivity is turned. So that kind of helps you to understand. Now you come to Daniel chapter 10. Daniel 9 comes after chapter 8 and helps Daniel to understand that prophecy. Now in Daniel 10, Daniel just starts right off at the outset and he says, I understand this vision I'm going to tell you about. Here's what I understand about it. It's going to be for a long time. Now here's what we know. What was the vision that he had just wondered about in the previous chapter? He was wondering, what's this whole 2300-day prophecy about? Well, God says in chapter 9, let me help you to understand. The first 490 years pertain to the Jewish nation. Now Daniel, when he sees this last vision, he sees, okay, he gets all the information that takes him to here, but then he gets information that takes him all the way to the end. And now he's saying, okay, I get it. We as a nation, we're going to be till 490 years after the decree begins to restore and build Jerusalem. But this vision goes way longer than that. So now Daniel, at the end of his life, he comes to an understanding of how long this great controversy warfare is going to last. Now let me ask you this. How many people do you think would have been satisfied after they got the answer in Daniel 9. Gabriel comes and says, 70 weeks are determined upon your people. They're cut off. You have this probationary time. Messiah the Prince is coming. Then there's going to be an abomination of desolation. The city of Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. Daniel was worried about, well, what's going to happen to Jerusalem and so forth? And he gets a somewhat, I mean, a partial answer, but at least he sees that the Messiah is going to come. How many people would say, all right, I figured it out. I'm done with my Bible study. I'm going to just go back to doing what I do now. Is that what Daniel did? No. Notice what happens next. Let's pick it up in verse 2. Daniel chapter 10, verse 2. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning three full weeks. I ate no pleasant bread, neither came flesh nor wine in my mouth, neither did I anoint myself at all till three whole weeks were fulfilled. Okay. So something's happening here. It says Daniel was mourning for th how long? Three weeks. Okay. And it says he ate no pleasant bread. This is like, I mean, the app, I mean, in that day and time compared to now, this would be like eating dessert and that kind of thing. Um, and where it says he did not anoint himself at all. Um, I think our understanding of that time is there were special oils and things that they would wear, um, and he didn't do that. doesn't mean that he didn't take a bath for three weeks. It just means that there were special extra stuff that you put on. He didn't do that. Now, when you see someone in a state, especially in the Old Testament, where they're in a state of mourning, 
They're not eating any special type of food. They're not anointing themselves. Um, he didn't eat any flesh or wine. What, what does that make you think of? And this isn't a... What's that? Um, yeah, that's, that's a good... Repentance, yeah. When you, especially when you study the children of Israel in the Old Testament, if there was a season of repentance or if they were coming before the Lord and they wanted to show the Lord that in their hearts they wanted to be separated from sin, they would leave off the extra stuff and they would show the Lord, they were, it was supposed to show the Lord that they were really serious about their repentance. And the, the one special application of this is the Day of Atonement, once a year, where they would be in sackcloth and ashes. Now, this isn't a perfect application, but what you can say here is, is that Daniel, in a sense, is entering into the spirit of the Day of Atonement experience as he's offering this prayer. Now, the question is, why is Daniel mourning? Or why is he in a state of sorrow? Why is he approaching God where he is putting off all the extra stuff and he is basically showing God, I'm really serious about what I'm, I'm praying to you about. Now, do we, and how do we know that, that Daniel is praying to God? We'll go back to verse 12. Um, in verse 12, Gabriel tells Daniel, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that thou didst set thine heart to understand and to chasten thyself before God, thy words were heard, and I am come for thy words. So notice, in verse 12, Daniel was chastening himself. Certainly here in verses 2 and 3, you can see that he's chastening himself. And he was chastening himself before God. He was offering words to God, and because of his words, Gabriel came to talk to him. So here in Daniel chapter 10, you have another special prayer of Daniel. Now, we don't get the detail of all that he said compared to chapter 9. Chapter 9 is one of the most beautiful prayers in all of Scripture. Chapter 10, he is also praying. Chapter 9, he gets an immediate answer, right? As soon as he starts praying, and he's, he's been studying, and he prays this prayer, and you go through it, and it may take a few minutes to read through it, Gabriel is there to answer. But here in chapter 10, it says he's mourning. He's sending words up to God for three weeks. So why is Gabriel, I mean, I'm sorry, why is Daniel in a state of mourning or a state of sorrow? Yeah, that's, a, that's definitely an important uh, th thought there. One issue is that he doesn't understand the end of the 2300-day prophecy. That may be part of it, but the, basically what was happening, and this is where history helps, and LMY actually has a statement that I'll read to you. At this point, there had been a decree by Cyrus to get the rebuilding of Jerusalem started, and perhaps Daniel and his limited understanding thought that was the decree to restore and build Jerusalem, and so 490 years later, then the Messiah would be coming. But what happened is, during this time, the Samaritans, they were, of course, former Israelites who had intermarried with the heathen, the Samaritans were very jealous about the Jews coming back to Jerusalem, and they sent back evil reports to the king of Persia. And they were saying stuff like, the Jews are going to raise an insurrection like they always have. They're going to make their own king and they're going to come back and, or, and, and they're not going to pay tribute to you and all that and that kind of thing. And so now Cyrus is thinking, oh no, I've made a mistake. I shouldn't have made the decree. And when you study the book of Ezra, there's three decrees. There's the decree of Cyrus, then there's Darius, and then there's Artaxerxes. Those three decrees work together and build on each other so that finally the third decree gets the prophecy started. But Daniel understands that if Cyrus's heart is turned against the Jews, that the promise that God has given of the coming of the Messiah and of the cleansing of the sanctuary is going to be jeopardized. Now, Daniel's not the only one who knows this, right? Who else knows that these decrees to restore and build Jerusalem are crucial, crucial, crucial in the great controversy? Who knows that? Satan. 
And do you think Satan was going to sit idly by and just let those decrees go forward without putting up a fight? Obviously, Satan had a vested interest to keep the Messiah from coming and from getting to the point where the sanctuary would be cleansed. Because once you have the cross, once you have the cleansing of the sanctuary, that will put an end to the sin problem and Satan will get wiped off the map. So Satan has a vested interest to try to prevent these decrees from going forward. Daniel knows that. Satan knows that. And so Daniel... He becomes very earnest this time. He says, you know what, this is serious. We are living at a very serious point in earth's history. I need to do whatever it takes, not through my own strength and power, but this is so serious and so much is at stake in the great controversy between Christ and Satan that I am going to enter into a state of prayer. I'm going to leave off all the extra stuff. I'm not going to eat anything I don't need to be eating. I'm just going to set myself before God and earnestly plead that he will hear me. Do you think we could learn something from that? You know, what's our reaction when we see stuff going on in the church or in the world or whatever? Are we like, oh, yeah, it's just another possible sign, business as usual. Maybe one of these days something will happen. Or, well, I guess the church is just lowering the standard again, whatever. I'll just keep praying silently and, you know, maybe something good will happen. No, we saw in the book of Jude that we need to earnestly contend for the faith. Daniel shows us how to earnestly contend here. You know, Michael in the book of Jude, of course, he uses the word of God and says, the Lord rebuke thee. But not only that, Daniel shows us here in Daniel chapter 10, when the church is facing dire straits, that is the time of all times to come to God in all seriousness with earnest supplication and prayer. And you know what? God hear, heard Daniel and he will hear us if we approach him with the same spirit. God heard Daniel in chapter 9 and helped him to understand when the Messiah would come and when the sanctuary would be cleansed. In Daniel chapter 10, now that there's this political strife that could undo this decree that would set forth eventually the decree to restore and build Jerusalem, Daniel sees the urgent need to be faithful and to strive to pray for the Lord to hear him. And we need more people like that in the church today. You know, five-minute prayers here and there when the entire great controversy is at stake. God's looking for more than that from his people. Now, you know what? The five-minute prayer apparently worked in Daniel chapter 9 because if you just read the prayer in Daniel chapter 9, it, it takes two to three minutes. And it was such a perfect prayer, and it, had, it probably had accompanied weeks of study and then after studying and trying to put everything together, Daniel offers this heartfelt prayer that lasts a few minutes, and boom, God answers his prayer. But that was just to help Daniel understand the starting point of the 2300 days, when the Messiah would come, when the 2300 days would begin, and that's important. But Daniel chapter 10, now there's conflict. Now Satan is working on the mind of the king of Persia to go against the people of God, and Satan is using everything he has. He is using all the forces of hell to go against the people of God. And at that point, a five-minute prayer probably isn't going to be what takes, or takes care of the problem. And listen, we can all look in our lives. It may be uh, an issue we have with a spouse, a sibling, a parent, a friend, whatever you name it. Five-minute prayers, that, that's not going not to get it done. We need to come with the attitude to God and say, I am going to pray to the Lord earnestly with supplication for as long as it takes. And those are the types of prayers that God will hear. And of course, the Bible says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. So the fact that Daniel was heard by God, that means iniquity was out of his heart. 
So people say, oh, show me a person that lived without sin. You realize Ellen White says that Daniel's life is an inspired record of sanctification. Look, you can follow the Lord fully and completely. Okay, so Daniel, he's praying hard for three full weeks. Let's pick up the story now in verse 4. And in the four and twentieth day of the first month, as I was by the side of the great river, which is Hittachel, then I lifted up mine eyes. And by the way, the Hittachel, that's the Tigris River, which is still there today. You have the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers going through Iraq. He was by the Tigris or the Hittachel River. Then I lifted up mine eyes and looked, and behold, a certain man clothed in linen, whose loins were girded with fine gold of Euphes. His body also was like the barrel, and his face as the appearance of lightning, and his eyes as lamps of fire, and his arms and his feet like in color to polished brass, and the voice of his words like the voice of a multitude. Who's this? We know that's Jesus. And I mean, you just go to Revelation chapter 1, and I'll show you, just to make it very clear that this is Jesus in Daniel chapter 10. If you go to Revelation chapter 1, this is Jesus appearing to John the Revelator. Revelation chapter 1, and we'll pick it up in verse 12. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto who? The Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were what? As a flame of fire, and his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. Listen, Jesus shows up to John the Revelator at the very beginning of the book of Revelation because he wants John, I mean, he wants us to know that the book of Revelation is of stupendous importance. Jesus himself comes and appears to John to say, this is a message from me. Same thing in Daniel chapter 10. This is leading us into the vision of Daniel chapter 11. Listen, if Jesus himself appears to Daniel to give Daniel the final vision of Daniel's life, how important do you think this vision is? This is a very important vision. This is a vision that Daniel was not necessarily expecting to receive. He's primarily praying to God because he sees that the decree that had gone forth to get the restoring and building of Jerusalem moving forward is now in jeopardy because of an evil report from the Samaritans to the king of Persia. He's praying to God on that behalf. But Jesus has something more to, to give to Daniel than just what Daniel was praying for in this situation. And perhaps Daniel wanted to know more about what was going to happen at the end of the 2300 days, but he especially was concerned about this political strife that could undo the people of God. And yet, here, after three full weeks of earnest prayer, not five minutes, but three full weeks, Jesus himself shows up to answer the prayer of Daniel. Isn't that amazing? And he answers the prayer of Daniel by showing him some very amazing things that we're going to get into. So Daniel has to know that something good is going to happen here based on what he is seeing. So let's pick it up now in verse 7. Okay. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men that were with me saw not the vision... But a great quaking fell upon them so that they fled to hide themselves. So in other words, Daniel is with other men. And when God appears in their presence, they just hear a loud thunder. They don't see the presence of God. Yet Daniel, because he was so connected to God, he saw the Son of God in the flesh. And you realize his three friends got to walk with the Son of God in the fiery furnace. He finally gets his turn at the end of his life. God is, Jesus is saying, I'm not going to let you pass off of earth's scene without me revealing to myself to you as well. So Daniel gets to see Jesus while he is still alive before he dies. And everyone else did not recognize, but Daniel did. In verse 8, therefore I was left alone and saw this great vision, and there remained no strength in me, for my comeliness was turned in me into corruption, and I retained 
no strength. You know, when you come into the presence of God, and we, you see this throughout Scripture, the prophets who come into the presence of God, their immediate response is they fall on their faces. They see their utter sinfulness. So why do we come into the presence of God and start dancing around and jumping and shouting and screaming? God is a holy God. Amen. When we enter into his presence, he is a holy God, and we are sinners saved by grace. We have no business dancing and shouting and screaming. He is a holy God, and we, when we come into his presence, we see our comeliness and it's turned into corruption. That's why Ellen White says, the closer we come to Christ, the more sinful we will appear in our own eyes. I mean, if you think that you're coming closer to Christ and you're saying, man, I'm really good now, you're going the wrong direction. Now, yet, that doesn't mean you don't have victory over sin. Listen, when you have victory over sin, you realize that in your strength, you are nothing. So you just keep your eyes on Jesus. So you're not thinking about yourself. You just realize that you are weak in and of yourself. Your focus is totally on him. And so Daniel, when he gets this vision, he has no more strength in him. His comeliness was turned into corruption. He retained no strength. So here's what happens. Jesus himself shows Daniel the vision. Daniel sees this vision. What is this vision that he saw? It's described in words from Daniel chapter 11, verse 1, into Daniel chapter 12, basically through verse 4. And then after that, you get the explanation from verse 5 through 13 of chapter 12. So Daniel 11, once you get to verse 1, that is Gabriel describing in words what Christ revealed in picture form to Daniel. So in other words, it's like you see the the picture on the big TV screen, but you don't necessarily understand what everything that you just saw. And then you have someone come and tell you, okay, that represents this, this represents that. And when they come, that means this. And when that person does that, that means that. That's what happens here. Christ shows Daniel. So Daniel sees in picture form, everything that is described from Daniel 11 verse one through the end. So that tells me this. If Christ showed these pictures to Daniel, don't you want to know what it was? Don't you think it's important? If Christ himself was the one that came to Daniel to show him this vision, clearly the vision of Daniel 11 is going to be very important. Okay, now, verse 9, Yet yeah, heard I the voice of his words, and when I heard the voice of his words, then was, an, then was I in a deep sleep on my face, and my face toward the ground. It's as if Daniel got knocked out by what he saw. It was so shocking. He was just in complete shock. Okay, now verse 10. And behold, an hand touched me, which set me upon my knees and upon, and upon the palms of my hands. So now Daniel gets onto his hands and knees. He's still so weak, he doesn't even want to sit up or stand up. What he saw shocked him so much, he's just on his hands and knees. Verse 11, and he said unto me, O Daniel, a man greatly beloved. Now, who is this speaking to Daniel now? This is actually Gabriel. We're transitioning. Christ appears, he shows Daniel the vision, but then Gabriel speaks to him. How do I know this is Gabriel? First of all, if you go back to Daniel 9, 23, Gabriel says the very same thing to Daniel. O Daniel, a man, you are greatly beloved. And then Ellen White also gives us an inside edge. This is, um, let's see here. Review and Herald, December 5, 1907. Ellen identifies Gabriel as the one speaking here. So what you have is Christ shows up in person. He shows Daniel in panoramic vision what's going to happen. And then Gabriel comes and talks to Daniel touches him on the, hand, on the shoulder, gets him on his hands and knees, and eventually gets him to sit up and says, okay, Daniel, you are a man greatly beloved. Understand the words that I speak unto thee, and stand upright, for unto thee am I now sent. And when he had spoken this word unto me, I stood trembling. So even after Gabriel tells Daniel, understand the words that I'm going to tell you, Daniel's still afraid based on what he saw. This was a shocking panoramic vision that Daniel sees. It blew his mind. It's as if he doesn't want to hear the interpretation. Now let's go, keep going. Verse 12. Then said he unto me, 
Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that thou didst set thine heart to understand and to chasten thyself before thy God, thy words were heard, and I am come for thy words. So when was the first day that Daniel set his heart to understand? The beginning of the three weeks. So Daniel has been praying for three weeks. And just as in Daniel chapter 9, immediately Gabriel comes to Daniel in Daniel chapter 9 and he says, okay, I'm going to help you understand the vision. Seventy weeks are cut off. The Messiah, the Prince is coming and all of that. All of that happens almost immediately, but it doesn't happen here. But Gabriel said, I was coming to tell you from the very first day. So what happened? He got held up. Here, and here's where Daniel, he has some understanding of this great controversy warfare, but he could not have seen in a physical, literal sense what was going on behind the scenes in a supernatural sense. Daniel is praying fervently with all his heart for three full weeks, and what he does not realize is what's happening. Verse 13, but the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me one and twenty days, but lo, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, and I remained there with the kings of Persia. So here's what happens. For three weeks, Gabriel is in conflict with the king of Persia, who is Cyrus. But here's the thing. Gabriel is the lead angel of heaven. He replaced Lucifer in heaven. He has all the power an angel can have in heaven next to God. He does not have God's power, but among the angels, he has the most power. So you're telling me that Gabriel, for three weeks, cannot overcome a human king? There's more to it than that. Behind this human king, Satan is working on the mind of the king of Persia. So it's this battle of the mind, so to speak. The Samaritans have given the king, of Cy- king Cyrus, the king of Persia, an evil report, and through the Samaritans, Satan is telling Cyrus, go back on your word. Get, take the Jews out of Jerusalem. Bring them back into captivity. They're no good. They're just going to cause you trouble. Don't let them have their own city. And Gabriel, on the other hand, is saying, no, don't listen to the Samaritans. Don't listen to Satan. You need to let them continue to rebuild their city. And behind Gabriel, Daniel is praying. And Daniel is saying, oh, Lord, deliver your people. Deliver your people. Deliver your people. You have been good to us. You finally got us back to our city. Please help us. Keep that deliverance for us. And so Daniel is praying steadfastly for three full weeks. Gabriel's working on the mind of the king of Persia for three full weeks. Satan is working with all his power on the mind of the king of Persia for three full weeks. Now, now Daniel, he doesn't understand to the extent perhaps just what's happening between Gabriel and Satan during that three weeks. All he knows is that it's a dire political circumstance for his Jewish people. And he knows that he just needs to be on his knees praying to the God of heaven who heard his prayer in chapter 9 and gave him an answer about the coming of the Messiah and when that prophecy would start. So after three weeks, verse 14, now notice what Gabriel says. Now I am come to make thee understand what shall befall thy people when? In the latter days, for yet the vision is for many days. So here's what happens. Three weeks, Gabriel is coming to to answer Daniel's prayer, but he's held up by the king of Persia because Satan is working on the mind of the king of Persia. And there's a a lot of things going on here. Again, the main thing, the Samaritans have worked on the, the mind of the king of Persia through Satan's influence, and so that's going to undermine the progress of getting the restoring and building of Jerusalem going. Gabriel wants to help Daniel to understand, hey, Everything's going to be okay. Let me show you what's going to happen. But Gabriel can't do that yet. Why not? If Gabriel comes and tells Daniel that, hey, let me show you what's going to happen from this point down to the end of time, 
that would not work because if the king of Persia turns against the people of God, what happens with the beginning of the prophecy and the end of prophecy is thrown into doubt. And so God cannot reveal information to Daniel until he gets this earthly king to be working in harmony with his will. And Satan is trying to get this king to work against the will of God. Gabriel is trying to get this king to work in harmony with the will of God. And Gabriel and God are backed up by the earnest prayer of Daniel for three full weeks. And after three full weeks, I can imagine, Michael, Christ, he's been up in heaven. He's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And they see Gabriel down in Persia working earnestly contending with the king of Persia for three full weeks and they've also during that three weeks they've been hearing the earnest petitions from their faithful greatly beloved servant Daniel and at some point I can hear God the father this is my sanctified imagination turning to to Michael Christ the son and he's like you know what don't you think our faithful servant Daniel's been praying long enough he doesn't need to pray any longer. He's proven himself. He's just going to keep praying and praying and praying and praying until we turn the tide in the favor of God's people. Three weeks, that's good enough. Okay, and Michael stands up, so to speak, and he comes down to heaven and he takes care of Satan, knocks Satan out of the picture, and he gets the king of Persia to be in harmony with his will. And now when he comes and takes care of Satan, he reveals himself in person to Daniel and he shows him the vision. And now Gabriel is still there and he tells Gabriel, okay, Gabriel, tell Daniel what this vision's all about now. You see that? So what has been happening is that there has been this great controversy struggle between Christ and Satan, between Michael and Satan. And you know what this ultimately comes down to is that this vision gives us information that tells us what happens all the way through history from when the, the decree to restore and build Jerusalem, all the kings that were in power, all the way through time. And then it starts to give us a lot more information about the events that take us, especially from 1798 in the time of the end, down past the cleansing of the sanctuary when that begins, all the way to when Michael stands up and when probation closes. And so this is such a significant and important vision that all the hosts of heaven and all the hosts of hell were in complete warfare over the revelation of, the, of what was going to happen at the end of time. And you know what happened? Just as in Daniel chapter 9, it was the prayer of a faithful servant of God that turned the tide. Because Daniel prayed faithfully for three full weeks. And after three full weeks, Michael shows up. Listen. There's a lot of things we can be praying for. And with persistent prayer, in accordance with God's will, God will hear those prayers. But you know what? When we study the book of Daniel, what we learn from the life of Daniel is that Daniel learned to pray for what was most important. You know what Daniel was praying for? He was praying for what was important to God. And when you were praying for what is important to God, those are the prayers especially that God is going to answer. I mean, if you're just praying, Lord, give me a nice house, give me a nice car, give me a good job, give me a good wife, give me a good husband, give me this, give me that. Those are all nice things, so to speak. And if you're faithful to the Lord, he may bless you in those areas. Maybe not all of them, but some of them. Maybe none of them. But are you not going to follow God if you don't get any of that? But listen, what does God want us people to be praying for now? Zechariah 10.1 says, pray for rain in the time of the latter rain. Amen. What are we praying for? Are we praying for what is important to God? Daniel, through his life, through his study of scripture, through his study of prophecy, learned to pray for what was important to God. What an example. 
And because of that, now notice, let's get into verse 14. Now Gabriel says, now I am come to make you understand what shall befall your people in the latter days, for yet the vision is for many days. So here's what Gabriel is basically telling Daniel. Okay, I already explained to you what's going to happen to to your people in the vision at the front end of this prophecy. Let me tell you what's going to happen to your people in the latter days. Because the vision is for many days. So here's the thing. Daniel chapter 9 takes care of the beginning of the 2300-day prophecy. Daniel 10, 11, and 12 take care of the ending of the 2300-day prophecy. And here's the significance of this prophecy. In this one prophecy, the work of Christ as our Savior and the work of Christ as our High Priest are connected as one prophecy. That's why the work of salvation is connected with what happened at the cross and what's happening in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary right now. That's why the atonement wasn't finished at the cross, because the final atonement begins in 1844 when Jesus goes into the most holy place, where eventually he's going to blot out the sins of God's people. And Satan is working tirelessly to try to prevent that from happening. And Daniel, because of his faithfulness and because of his prayer, he was able to usher the powers of heaven to come work on behalf of God's people so that Satan would be knocked out as he tried to influence the king of Persia so that Gabriel would no longer have to contend with him. Michael shows up. Michael wins again. We're three for three now, by the way. Revelation 12, Jude, Daniel 10. And because of that, now we know that the Messiah is going to come and he's going to enter into the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary. And here's the amazing thing. Daniel was on this side of the entire prophecy when all this took place. Where are we? We're way past over here. What are we praying for? What are we excited about? The Miami Heat and the San Antonio Spurs, the Stanley Cup Finals, the U.S. Open? Is that what we're all pumped up about? Daniel, if he was alive today, I can tell you what he would be doing. He would be earnestly praying and contending and pleading with God that God would raise up a people who would really be a demonstration of the remnant church described in the, in the book of Revelation. That we would no longer be identified as being pretty good Christians who fit in very well with the world, but that, would we, that we would be a distinct, unique, peculiar people with a message for this time, who not only have a message, but who live the message. That's what Daniel would be doing, and should it be any different for us? I mean, we know what we should be doing. And so, Gabriel says, now I'm come to make you understand what shall befall thy people in the latter days, for yet the vision is for many days. So what's the purpose of Daniel 11? Daniel 11, you get all this history, but what it's basically going to funnel you down to are the verses of 40 to 45 in Daniel 11, which help us to understand the events from when the papacy receives the deadly wound in 1798 all the way down till the time when Michael stands up, probation closes, and we enter into Jacob's time of trouble. And so that's what the vision of Daniel 11 is funneling us down to. All that other information is there so that we can understand the ending point. That's what we're going to spend the entire next session talking about. Okay. So now Daniel understands that this vision is for many days. So when you go back to verse 1 of Daniel chapter 10, he says, this message, this thing was revealed to me. The thing is true. The message is true. The time appointed is long. And he says he understood the thing. He understood the message and had understanding of the vision. So Daniel, after he sees it, and then after Gabriel tells it to him, he understands now. I get it, he says. I understand that Yes, there's the 70-week portion of this prophecy, but this is a long period of time. Yes, the Jewish nation, they're going to have this period of time, but God is going to raise up a seed, a spiritual Israel, who will be alive at the end of time, who will represent the character of God at the end of time. And when the sanctuary is cleansed in heaven, God will cleanse his people here on this earth. Daniel now understands more to the picture than he had before. And we'll talk about this in our next section, but you, you do realize... When we talk about the cleansing of the sanctuary, how's the sanctuary going to be cleansed? The blotting out of sin. You realize Ellen White says that there must be a cleansing of sin from the lives of the people here on this earth in order for the sanctuary in heaven to be cleansed above? 
listen, if God's people keep sinning, we're going to stay here. But here's the thing. Some people can get the mentality, oh, well, I'll just keep sinning, and that will keep Jesus from coming. You better not do that, because other people around you are getting ready. <laughs> and we're, this thing's about to wrap up. So don't have that mentality. But that's the, the spirit of the evil servant in Matthew 24, my Lord delayeth his coming. Okay. So we're down to our last few minutes here. Let me just finish up Daniel chapter 10. So then it says, When he had spoken such words unto me, I set my face toward the ground, and I became dumb. And then continuing on, basically, um, Daniel says, Listen, how can I even talk? How can I even hear? I saw what God showed to me, and I don't even know if I can have the strength to hear it. But then Gabriel strengthens him to hear this message. And let's pick it up in verse 19. Gabriel says, and said, O man, greatly beloved, fear not, peace be unto thee, be strong, yea, be strong. And when he had spoken unto me, I was strengthened and said, let my Lord speak, for thou hast strengthened me. Then said he, knowest thou wherefore I come unto thee, and now will I return to fight with the prince of Persia. And when I am gone forth, lo, the prince of Grecia shall come. But I will show thee that which is noted in the scripture of truth, and there is none that holdeth with me in these things, but Michael your prince. And so Michael is mentioned two times in Daniel chapter 10. First of all, he's mentioned showing that he knocks off Satan after three weeks of contending between Gabriel and Satan over the mind of the king of Persia as Daniel's praying for three weeks. But not only does Michael knock off Satan, Gabriel says, listen, nobody knows the word of God like I do except Michael. Listen. How did Michael contend with Satan in the book of Jude? With the word of God. And what we are going to see here is, is that there is this controversy. Once we pick it up in chapter 11, there's going to be a controversy that goes down through time. And what we need to follow is the scripture of truth that Michael is the chief in knowing. When we follow the scripture of truth, we will have Michael, who is described as the archangel, the chief of the angels, who has all the power of heaven. He is God. When we are standing on the side of Michael, it might take three weeks of praying, but if Michael shows up on your behalf the way he did for Daniel in Daniel chapter 10, it doesn't matter if Satan and all the hosts of hell are against you personally. When Michael shows up, it's over. And I don't know about you, but I want to stand on the side of Michael. And what we're going to see in our next section is that there is a day that is coming when Michael is going to stand up. And he's going to stand for the children of Daniel's people, meaning the remnant at the end of time. And God has designed for you to be part of that remnant. So if you want to know what it's going to take for Michael to stand up for you, you're going to want to be here for our last se session coming up. Let's close with prayer. Father in heaven, thank you so much for the message of Michael coming and turning the heart of the king of Persia towards his will because Daniel prayed faithfully for three weeks. Lord, give us perseverance. Give us that same desire to pray, to earnestly contend and to pray until your will is accomplished in the lives of your people. I pray that you would raise up more Daniels in our day, that you would raise up a generation of saints that will be a demonstration of what you can do when we give our lives fully and completely to you. And Lord, we look forward to that day when Michael will stand up. So may we be faithful. This is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.